0: Tonight we're talking about wealth, about money. So, if I say the word money, what's the first word that comes to mind? Money. Abundance. Abundance. Greed. Greed. Job. What? Job. Purchasing. Purchasing. Happiness. Happiness. Want. Want, investments, investments. What, what, what was that, family, family. family. What, what do we use money for? What do we use money for? What does that mean? Everything. What are you give me some specifics? What do we use money for? It's how we exchange goods and services. It's how we exchange goods and services. Okay. To pay the bills. To pay the bills. To facilitate. To facilitate. Value. It's influence. influence. Knowledge, power. I hear a lot of big words, big thinking words associated with the word money. Corruption. Corruption. I want you to start thinking about tonight the way that you look at money. How do you look at money? Because that's what we're going to talk about tonight. What is your perception of money? How do you, when you think of money, when you think of, do you get excited? Do you get uplifted? Do you get depressed because of the amount that's in your bank account? What is your reaction to money? It's also the great divider. The great divider. Explain yourself. It divides So there's a lot we really, money is not just something that we are talking about. I mean, in the beginning we started off when I said, well, what's the first thing that comes to mind about money? I heard some words like bills, things that were very simple. But when I think about, when I talk about what do you think about money, how do you interpret money, we start getting bigger words. Where does money come from? You know what? I want to stop. Hold that thought. No, actually, let's continue. Where does money come from? <coughs> <laughs> so I just heard government currency produced by the mint. I won't repeat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> At the expense of another. Money sometimes can come at the expense of another. So I just want to write this down government currency, expense of another. Anything else? It's a paper with, uh, a paper with uh, currency property value. A paper with value? Are you saying it's too small for you in the back? <laughs> what else? Where does money come from? Time. Time Time is money. Time is money. Resources. Resources. Comes from resources. Work. Taxes. taxes. That's certain. Look at this. We have a work, government currency, expense of another, paper with value, time, resources, taxes. There is nothing in our world today that is more worshipped than money. Now, I want to kind of change. All of this, just for a moment, I'm going to leave it on the board here, but I want to take you to another dimension, just for a minute. What is an idol? What is an idol? Something you worship. Something you worship. Someone you worship. worship. Not American idol. (laughs) A A false god. Idolatry. It's the second of the top ten. Number two of the Ten Commandments. Do not worship molten images. Do not worship false gods. If I were to say money equals idolatry, what would you say? Far fetched. I heard guilty of idolatry. I'm I'm just taking us a different place. I wanna. I really wanna mix up our views on money tonight and try to see if we can come out with something very different than we came in with. My goal tonight is to teach you some of the age-old views, ideas, and habits when it comes to money, how to view money, how to experience money, and my hope tonight is that when you come out of this class, you're going to look at money very differently, very differently. And I'm sure that if you do look at money this way, it's going to change a lot of the things that you do in your life and the way that you look at your life. That's my goal tonight. I'll make it very clear. A false God simply is putting your trust in something that is not trustworthy. What is God? With God, we put our trust in something that is trustworthy. So a false God is putting our trust in in something that is not trustworthy. So, how can you worship something that's less real than you? If I were to say, I'd like to tell you, I have something to tell you. I know it's going to be hard for you to understand this, but this created me. This marker right here. (laughs) And I shall worship it forever. And I worship this marker. It's who I am. I look up to it as much as I can. There are people, there are people who used to take a stone from the ground and say this is my God, who used to worship the dust of their feet, the stars in the sky. It all depends on how you sell it. It's like a marketing pool. That's it. I, I, when I was writing, I wrote an animation on the story of Abraham. You may, you may have seen it. It's called Abraham. It's an animation. Uh, it's, it's done quite well. So when I was writing the story of Abraham, so... He comes to his family to try to explain to him that he found this God. So his brother turns to him and he says, Are you trying to tell me about a God you can't see, you can't hear, and you can't sell? (laughs) Because his family was in the idol business. So, putting your trust in something that's not trustworthy... You have to understand, belief in God is a new idea. If you go look in the Torah, you talk about the biblical characters. Adam spoke to God. Noah. You know the story. God comes to Noah and says, build an ark. And he's like, are you talking to me? (laughs) He's having a conversation with God. He's not asking, God, do you exist? He's asking God, what's a cubic? He's asking God, how high? He's asking God, how real? Abraham, he's talking to God. Moses is talking to God. These people are having relationships. All of a sudden... Something changed in the world. Now, I'll explain it to you this way. It says, in the days of Enosh, this is during the times of the Bible, the people made a mistake. They started saying that just like a king has ministers... And the king appoints the ministers and gives the ministers the same power as the king. The ministers can appoint. The ministers can do so many things. So the same way the king has ministers and appoints this power, God appointed this power to the sun and the moon and the stars. And people started worshipping the constellations, the, the horoscope. They started worshipping these things saying that God appointed these deities to teach us and to direct us. That was the first step. Then, they went a step further to say that God wants us to worship these these deities. And later on, they went so far as to say the idol. The stars and the moon and the sun actually want us to worship it. And you can see, at first, to say, how can someone worship this marker, it doesn't make any sense. But if you see the chronology, first, it's God wants us to worship this, then it's, sorry, God appointed this for us to worship it, then God wants us to worship it, and the third is it wants us to worship it. So you can see how this pattern happened and idolatry was created in the world. Today we don't understand it, but we have new forms of idolatry. And the new form of idolatry that we have today is money. There's many, but I'll say number one on top of the list of the 21st century or 20th century or our world idolatry. We worship money. On the dollar bill, on the U.S. dollar bill, right in the back, in big, bold letters, it says, In God we trust. We worship that dollar bill like none other. We think like it. Time is money. Time is not meaningful. Time is not important. Time is money. We think in terms of money. Like you said, we look at people, their status. There are people who work so hard, three jobs so they can keep up a certain status. So people can think, or they can give the illusion that they have money. Just so they can be with the Joneses. The whole Joneses business. So. Tonight... I want to take a very different turn, and I want to see if we can analyze the world's perception of money, the Torah's view on money, and see if something changes there. So I titled the first part of tonight's talk, The Five Things I Learned About Money. Number one, page nine. I learned that money is a fiction. Money is not real. Money is a useful fiction. It's even a productive fiction, but it's not real. All it is, is a commonly held consensus that a digital record stored in the computers of some financial institution or the equity of a certain property registered in our name, represents the value of X in goods and services. We build further fictions upon this fiction, like the fiction of an anticipated return on an investment, or more fictions upon those fictions, like the fiction of the leverage value of an anticipated return on an investment. Some financial wizards have succeeded in perpetuating the fiction of money to the fifth or sixth, or seventh degree. But no matter how many times you layer over the fiction, it's still fiction. And what that consensus unravels is when the collective confidence in fiction of money begins to slip, then we're left with nothing. You see, here's the problem. Our false gods, our idols, have let us down. They haven't held up. They're not real. They have no power of their own. The problem that people had with saying that the stars and the moon are like the ministers of the king, that was the the analogy they used to give. The stars and the moon are like the ministers of the king. The problem with that is the ministers of the king have their own choice. So the fact that they've chosen to be the minister of the king, we give them a little respect. That makes sense. The stars and the moon and the sun have absolutely no choice of their own. There's absolutely nothing about them that is their own. Money has no choice of its own. It's going to let us down because it's the false god. We can't trust in something that's not trustworthy. We can't put our our energy into something that's not trustworthy. See, it's funny. Our grandparents knew this. You know how I know? Because a lot of them were very wealthy in the old country. And they came because they were forced to come here and they had to leave everything. They left everything in the old country. Whatever they built up, whatever they had, they had to put in all they could take was maybe a small suitcase if they were lucky. So they understood this. They should have known better. They should have taught us this. But many of them came to this country and they went back into the same exact thing. They said, oh, this country is a good country. The people are kind here. We don't have to worry about it. No one is going to chase us out because of communism or totalitarianism or whatever is going to happen. This is a good place. So therefore we can become wealthy once again. What happens when you add to the truth? If you take something that's true, that's an absolute. Okay, what's true? Give me something that's true. Huh? What's true? Torah. Okay. Obvious, we're here in a class. The big T. Torah. Like the sign outside. T for Torah. Yeah. Yeah. What's true? Ourselves. Ourselves. Our children. Us. Kids. It's truth. Give me something that's true that you can add to. House. Is, is a house true? Why not? You have to live in something. You have to live in something. But here, let's take the Torah. What happens if you add to the Torah? What happens to it? You can't in it. What happens if you add to the Torah? Is it still true? If you add, if you said, oh, uh, I don't like this one, I'm going to take out this verse and I'm going to change it, is it still the Torah? No. No, it's some 2014 version of the Torah. It's not the same Torah that we had. The reason why the Torah is truth is because in 3,000 years it hasn't been changed. And the proof that it hasn't been changed in 3,000 years is the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was an amazing thing when we found those Dead Sea Scrolls because everybody said, The Torah has not been changed in 3,000 years. And the historians, even in the 60s, the historians were saying, huh, I don't believe it. The Jews have been persecuted. The Jews have gone through so many countries and so many places and so many times. It's impossible. Impossible that the Torah has not been changed. And then one day, some Bedouin, found some scrolls. And the archaeologists proved that these scrolls were indeed 3,000 years old. And they compared those scrolls to exactly the same scrolls that we've been reading from the Torah every single week for thousands of years, and not one letter was different. Not one letter had changed. And that proved that the Torah is truth. But if you add to the truth, it becomes false. False. So now tell me, tell me something like the Torah in this world that we value that has not been changed, that has not been redone, recreated, revalued, re-re-read re -re something. Give me an example of anything that has not been changed in this world, updated, reconfigured, reconstrued, something. Not even our not even us. Is there anything? See that's an amazing thing. Because we all know this word truth. A lot of us value truth. We hate lies. But yet, majority of what we value is not true. Majority of the things that we put so much emphasis, and we put so much time, and we put so much effort into, is not true. So now, if I were to say to you, the only thing indisputable, at least in this room, for the time being, that is true has some life lessons about wealth and money. Maybe it's worth listening. Maybe it's worth checking it out. Because right now, at the current state, it's indisputable that it's the only thing that's true. And the one thing I want to know in my life right now is about money and how to make money and how to get money because that's my value, and that's what I want, because I want more money, because I want more money so I can get more money, so I can have more money, so I can be with more money, and so that I have more money, and so that there's more money in my account, and so that I'm full of more money, so that way I can do so many more things that I was going to do with the more money that I have that I have no time because I'm so busy making the money that I have so money, so much money for. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make the money that I have no time for. So with the time that I have, I'm going to take a vacation with that time, and then I'm going to have money. I'm going to value that money. I'm going to keep it and I'm going to save it. And then it's going to be lost in the stock market. Oh, sorry. Okay. Everything we know, everything in our lives that we know is limited to time and place. Everything. Tell me something that you know that is not confined by time and place. The reason why we're so concerned about putting everything in the context of time and place it's because of science. Most of us are students of science. And so therefore, science is very concerned about creating confines, trying to bring it down into this world, trying to bring it to this moment. Right? We're, gonna, we're not worried about when the tree started. We're just going to look at the tree today, and we're going to carbon date it, and based on our carbon dating, whether it's true or not true, it doesn't matter. That's our truth. See, true or not true? It's our truth at this moment. The carbon dating is working. And that is the age of the tree, based on the carbon dating. So science, and as students of science, we become accustomed to making and confining everything to time and space. Not only that, but if somebody comes with an idea that is not confined to time and space, we will try to prove it and confine it to time and space. Otherwise, we're going to say to them, prove it. That notion of prove it means we want to confine it to time and space. Now, by doing that, we limit a lot, we limit everything. Because if I were to just tell you that anything is possible, just say those words, anything is possible, the moment your, your defense mechanism is going, no, 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 not anything, I have 24 hours in a day, I have to sleep, I have to eat, I have to drive to work, I have things to do, I have places to go, people to see, I'm confined by time and space so not anything it's very nice for you to say anything but it's not true true truth the Torah Kabbalah especially is not concerned with time and place Kabbalah does not want us to be concerned with time and space because it doesn't matter It's an obvious thing that everything we know is limited by time and space. Not only that, but the terms that Kabbalah uses are anthropomorphic terms. Heard that word before? They're terms that are just metaphors for grandiose ideas that we would have no idea what they mean because they are not limited by time and space. Heaven is not limited by time and space. The only place that's limited by time and space is this world. And so, if our body is the wick, and our soul is the flame, our soul is constantly wanting to rise higher, and our body is the wick keeping it rooted in this ground, rooted in this plane, rooted in this world. But our soul wants to rise higher, and so often we don't allow our souls to rise higher because we limit it, without even trying, without even attempting to let the soul grow and see what will be. Who, who am I really? Who am I? One of my favorite stories is a story of Rabbi Shneur Zaman of Liadi, the author of Atanya, who's known as the Alter Rebbe. He raised his grandson his daughter passed away young and he raised the grandson and the three-year-old child promised his daughter he would raise him. Three-year-old child sitting on his lap one day and he turns to the child three years old and he says in Yiddish Vu is Zeta? He says, where's grandpa? So the child pointed to his nose he says, no, no, no that's grandpa's nose where is grandpa? The child points to his eyes. He says, no, that's Grandpa's eyes. He says, where's Grandpa? So he points to his ears. He says, no, no, that's Grandpa's ears. And they continued the conversation. The grandfather got up to walk out of the room. And the child screamed out, Zayda! Grandpa! And the grandfather turned around. And he says, that's Grandpa. (laughs) Who we are is our spirit. Who we are is our passion. Who we are is our soul. That's who we are. But because of our conditioning, we have not been able to allow our soul to shine. We have no idea what our soul has to say. Because we haven't allowed it. We just so easily just say, but this is the way it is. Who said that's the way it is? Who said... We are a fusion of the physical and the spiritual. That's who we are. We're a body in this world, the soul rising higher. So who are we? Who are we really? Let's go to number two. Page nine. I learned that money is not a measure of worth. A man wakes up in the morning, logs into his accounts, checks a few numbers, makes a few calculations, and reaches to the conclusion that as of 7.42 a.m. of this particular day on the calendar, he's worth $50 million, or whatever number he decides or 25 cents, whatever. And then a certain market, halfway across the globe, hiccups in a certain way, and now he's worth double that? Really? Is he a better person? Is he now happier? More loving to his family? Kinder to strangers? More fulfilled in his heart? And if, God forbid, the market gives another hiccup, And the digits of his portfolio are suddenly half or a quarter of what they were yesterday? Is he now worth much less? When are we going to stop judging people by money? By their worth. So what do you do for a living? Ah, okay. I'll size you up. How much you're worth? Uh Mm Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Okay. Lizzie this week, I just heard about this today, she puts a Facebook status update. OMG, 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 right? And everybody thought she won the lottery. Automatically, that's what they thought, that she won the lottery. And they're all writing comments under her Facebook. Oh, well, how much did you win? But it could be anything. Anything. What gets you excited in life could be anything. But for some reason, we become so accustomed in our lives to get excited by money. Here is my question to you tonight. Has it ever helped anyone? Has anyone ever been a better person? A kinder person? A more powerful person? Before I go to answering that question, I want to backtrack, give you a little cabal. First man is Adam. First woman is Eve. Eve. Adam and Eve. Adam is created from dirt. dirt, right? God took dirt, fashioned it into a man, and blew into his nostrils a breath of life. And voila, we had Adam, the first person says the Bible. Bestseller of all time. Eve, how is she created? From him. From him. Now, the lowest place you can go in the world is back to your beginning. Nobody wants to be a baby again. That would be the, 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 the lowest part of who you are. Back to day one, minute one, second one. You don't want to be there. You have grown physically, emotionally, mentally. You've matured. So many things have happened since that first moment. So the worst place for someone to be is in the beginning. So for Adam, for man, the worst place for him to be is the beginning, which is dirt. So he's always concerned about becoming dirt, about becoming nothing. And that is why, that is why, Men have this innate desire, according to Kabbalah, to achieve. Men, and not women, says Kabbalah. Kabbalah is very strong about the difference between men and women. Now, what Kabbalah does say never talks about men and women. Only male and female energy. That both men and women are made up of male and female energy. In most men, the male energy is dominant. And in most women, the female energy is dominant. So, in the, the male energy in the person wants to achieve, wants to prove that it's not dust, that it's not dirt, that it's not nothing. The opposite of nothing is something. So, it wants to prove it's a something. So, it wants to get a car, it wants to get a house, it wants to get blue suede shoes. I don't have any blue suede shoes. Do you have a guitar? that is that the male energy now what is the female energy concerned with and here's where I get a little controversial being a man the lowest place she can go is becoming him Comprende? Oh, yeah. Or we say in French en comprend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> need I say any more? So the male energy often with that the need to achieve and accomplish will often misinterpret that achievement and accomplishment with money. It's it's a mistake, it's a huge mistake. Because really what it wants to do is it wants to achieve and accomplish. Accomplish what? What the soul wants. What does the soul want to accomplish? The soul wants to be a better person. Be a better father. Be a better husband. Be a better... With others. Interpersonal skills. Intrapersonal skills. Wants to give. Volunteer. fascinating. One of the things that fascinated me the most, and I followed it, of course, it, it, if you remember, it wasn't that long ago. I think you probably all forgot it by now, but uh, the, Bernie, the, the Bernie Madoff st- scandal. There was also there was one here as well, but I was following it, and there was a lot of unfortunately, a lot of Jews that were part of that. And I remember this interview on CNN with this elderly couple. They were in their 90s, and they had given him all their life savings, and they had nothing. They were penniless. They found out they were penniless. And you could see the the disgust and the guilt in their eyes when they're interviewing them. You can see they they, they can't go out and, and, and start making money again. It's not going to happen. And everything they had, everything they saved up in their life was gone. It was gone. It's old Jewish couple. And at the end of the interview. The interviewer says, "Bernie Madoff is sitting in his penthouse apartments right now, watching this interview. What do you have to say to him?" And the old man turns to the camera, and he says, "Fet." <laughs> he, <didn't work. laughs> say? he says. is the most descriptive Yiddish word. Now, Yiddish is descriptive. But fe is by far the most descriptive Yiddish term that there is. And if you don't know Yiddish, I will tell you what fe means. Fe means, how could you belittle yourself to this? How could you, somebody I think much greater of you, how could you lead me to this? That's what fe On the contrary, I'll tell you another story. A story I love telling. You. Never will never grow old, this one. That was that. Moses Montefiore. Wherever you go in the world, you'll probably see something the Montefiore Club, the Montefiore House, the Montefiore Hospital, the Montefiore School. Moses Montefiore was probably the greatest philanthropist of the 20th century. lived in England, he was uh, a banker. He owned a lot of real estate, and he was a close friend to Queen Victoria I. And because of his special status in England, Queen Victoria would send him a a letter once a year and ask him for an accounting of his yearly salary or whatever he had made that year, and then she would decide how much to tax him depending on how the coffers looked for the year. So this year was no different. She sends him A letter, and he sends her an accounting back. She gets the accounting, she takes one look at it, and she says, how dare he? I trust him, he's my friend. How dare he? He lied to me. I know he must have made 10 or 20 times this amount. This cannot be the amount he made this year. That liar, that thief... I want you to seize all his property and everything he owns and put him in the dungeons until I can figure out what to do with him. When she calms down, they pull him out of the dungeons. She brings him into to her chambers and she says, How could you? We're friends. Explain yourself. So he says, My queen, my queen, I'll explain myself. What I gave you there in your hand is an accounting of all the charity that I gave this year. Because according to my tradition, according to my people, dear Queen, what we give to charity is all that we have. That is truly what we own. And my Queen, you just proved that my people are right because in one moment you seized seized everything I own and you threw me in prison. I had nothing while I was waiting for you to get out of your rage. And you proved that indeed all I have is the charity that I've given. I was in Israel when the shekel was turned into the shekel chadash. Everyone remember this? It wasn't that long ago. About 15 years ago. And people were, were beside themselves. You understand? They had money, and overnight, it was worthless. They didn't know what to do with themselves. The, Israel had no choice. They had to declare bankruptcy. They had to start over again. The, the, the system was, was just making a huge mess, and that was the best way to do it. Do you remember this when it happened? They, they had no choice. There was shekel, became the shekel chadash, the new, the new shekel. It was a, it's, a, it's a long thing. They figured it all out. It, it ended up, they had a whole system of how it was. There were some they, they knew it actually bounced back, and the shekel today is worth about four to a dollar. It's, it was much better, I mean, or 3.8. In those days, in those days it was like 50 to a dollar or 60 to a dollar. It was, so it, it definitely bounced back. And I remember watching these kids right afterwards playing with a hundred shekel coin in the streets. A hundred shekel coin. It was, it was worthless. Eventually, they figured out that you can melt it down and you can use the metal, and people were started collecting them and melting them, of course, the Jews, right? So <laughs> but what was what was amazing for me, and it taught me a lot about money, it taught me that overnight money is worthless. What is money? We put so much value, we put so much attention, but really we just need to change our focus from money to life. Focus, instead of focusing on money, focus on life. Think about that a second. Replace every word that you use for money. Time is life. I'm going to, today I'm going to go to work so I can make a better life for myself and my family. In my bank account, I have the means to which I can live my life. Try that for a bit. Anytime you want to use the word money, replace it with life. So, if you say something like, money is so important, life is so important, I need money. I need life. Money makes the world go round. Life makes the world go round. We need to start changing the lingam. It's just the words. Words are just tools through which our soul can express itself. Our soul is trying to express itself and telling us that we need to replace the word money with the word life. story, the, the great Rebbe Rashab, he lived in a town called Lubavitch, you may have heard of that town before, he was a great rabbi, and people used to come to him and ask for advice, and one day a, a man came to him and he, was, he owned a, a boot factory, they made boots, and he starts crying to the rabbi. Saying how his factory is going down, it's not good. It's taking a turn for it worse, and he starts going through all the details of everything that's been going on in his life with his factory. The rabbi takes a look at him, and he pauses, and he says, "You know, I've heard of a foot in a boot, but I've never heard of anyone putting a head in the boot." Where's the focus? We have money to live a better life. For a little while I was infatuated with Warren Buffett. Many people have probably gone through that phase. Amazing. You know, he's the the guy who started the billionaire giving campaign where all the the richest people in the world are going to give their money to charity. Amazing guy, fascinating person. He's the one who went to Obama and said that he should tax the rich people more. All, the, all his friends were screaming at him. But he believed it. He said, it didn't make any sense that my secretary was paying more in taxes than I am. So he writes in his biography. Someone wrote his biography. I don't think he wrote it. But in his biography, he writes about how he was never there for his kids. But then he just throws a line in there and just, I just brushed over it. and I went back and I read it again. And he says, but at least I left them a lot of money. It bothered me. Which kid would rather a million dollars or a father? I ask them when they're 10. They're maybe, when they're 15 or 16, maybe they have a different answer. But if they really think about it. And when it matters most, they think about it. After, heaven forbid, that parent is gone. What's the million dollars? Let's go on to number three. I I wish that we can get some coffee to wake the room up a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) And she basically He writes it. He writes about it. He writes it. He writes about the fact that he has no relationship with his kids. Where are our priorities? That's all that matters. Where are our priorities? What is important? I learned that money is not a means to an end. This is my number three lesson on money from Kabbalah. For years, we lived for money, we worked to earn it. And when that wasn't enough, we worked overtime or took a second job. And then expended anxious hours and sleepless nights to manage it and grow it. We sacrificed everything, family, community, peace of mind, for our money. And where's all that money now? It turns out we never had it in the first place. It had us. We learned the hard way, but uh, there's no other way to learn that money is a tool for life and not the other way around. One of my favorite classes that I give is once a semester I take a group of 15 university students through an eight-week journey on trying to create a Jewish identity. It's called Sinai Scholars. It's Mondays at 6 o'clock. A few of People in this room have been through that course. And last night, we had Lesson 3 of the Sinai Scholars, which is about Shabbat. And somebody said something that really triggered my imagination. We were talking about what it says in the Torah. It says, six days a week you should work, and on the seventh day you should rest. Why? Rest from what? What did God do for six days? God created So we're resting from creation. And that's why we don't create. Shabbat is about not creating. It's about being instead of becoming. That's the whole nature of Shabbat. We don't rest from work. We rest from creating. But one girl at the end, when we're talking about the reflection from the evening's class, she says, you know what I realized? In order to appreciate Shabbat, you have to work. You can't rest for six days and then expect for Shabbat to be meaningful. And the truth is, Shabbat becomes so much more meaningful when you have a job and when you need to have that time to take a break. So, there's another verse that says, it says that God should bless you in all that you do. That's the understanding of that God is in control and God will, that money, it's, it's how the, the, the verse says, that money is mine, and gold is mine, and silver is mine. That money belongs to God. Ask any person in sales. People in sales have the most faith. If they don't have faith, then they have something. You know, you hear them saying, saying funny words like, oh, it'll be better. Better for what? Better for the God you don't believe in? Well, what do you mean? It'll be better. It, it, there'll be better times. I know tonight, today's tough, but I'm sure there'll be better times. Who's going to prove that it's going to be better times? And then, out of the blue one day, there's a call, a random call, and then it leads to someone, it leads to someone else, it leads to someone else, and somehow you have a good month. People in sales know this. People who have... Jobs that uh, they get a salary, they don't understand it as much. But you have to believe in a higher power. You have to know that money does not belong to us. Money belongs to God or to a higher power. And connecting to that higher power, the faith in the power. Now God gives us what we need. The Torah says, Kabbalah says, the people who have been given more money than what they need they've been given it because God trusts them with it and God knows that they're going to do the right thing with it they have been trusted that soul in its form now it could be that soul came into the world and got a little uh, schmutzik got a little dirty in this world made some difficult choices not the best choices but that soul in its purest form came down into this world and God gave this soul more money than it needs so it can do good with that money. That's what Kabbalah says. Because, not belief, but God trusts this soul with that money. Proof? The manna. The greatest proof is the manna. The manna came down from heaven every single day the right amount. And then on Friday twice because it didn't come on Saturday because it was Shabbat. And the people learned to live and it was our practice to understand what you do with money. That was how we learned to deal with money. God started us off as a people by giving us everything, like a child in the parent's home, to teach us what we should be doing with money. That leads me to number four. I learned that what we give is more ours than what we gain. That the money we make never truly belongs to us. It either disappears into thin air at some point, or it saps us, our strength, and steals our lives. But every hour spent with our children, every dollar we give to charity, every positive endeavor we support, these can never be taken away from us. They are ours forever. My favorite story, I have to tell this story. It's a story that happened a number of years ago. It was written up in the New York Times. About this guy, a billionaire, who dies, and he leaves two wills, and he says, the first will I want you to open the day that I die, and the second will I want you to open 30 days after I die. And so, they open his will, and it says, my dear children, if you go into my bedroom and you look in my top drawer, you're going to find a beautiful silver case. And inside this silver case is my favorite pair of socks. I want to be buried in the socks. That's it. That's the end of the will. And so they go up into his house, and they go into his room, and they open the drawer, and sure enough, they find this gorgeous silver case. And inside the silver case is a fresh pair of socks. And they run to the funeral home with this pair of socks. And they say to the funeral director, here's the will. Last will and testament of our dad. All he wants is to be buried in these socks. Now the funeral director was Jewish. If anyone knows anything, you should never know these things. But in Jewish law, one can only be buried in the shrouds. And even if one has a wish to be buried in socks, it's not possible. Now these people were not religious. They were not believers. Believers. They had a dad, and they wanted to honor his wish, and they said, you're going to bury him in the socks, and the funeral director was trying to be nice. Now, you have to understand, what was amazing about this story is that dad had donated the funeral home. It was the fabricadisha Kadisha with the dad's name on it. So he was the philanthropist of this particular institution. This funeral director was in a little bit of a quandary, if you can imagine, so he... Convened a board of rabbis, three rabbis, one from New York, one from Toronto, and one from Israel, to try to figure out what to do if there's any way to make a loophole of any sort because this was a very important thing. I mean, this guy was probably the most important person to this funeral home. They convened. They spoke for hours. They could not find any way to bury this man in socks. They went back the kids and they said we cannot bury your father in these socks we're sorry if you want to go somewhere else you can go somewhere else but we will not do it anyway they buried him the entire shiva. all they talked about these stupid religious people how could they do that our father's last will and testament all he wanted was to be buried in his socks it's crazy you know you can make a bend you know the rules are the rules but you can't go crazy on us over here you know, it's what he wanted the last will and testament is so powerful Thirty days later, as promised, they open up the second will. The second will the full will, and it starts off with the following words. It says, My dear children, by now you have figured out that I cannot be buried with my socks. Before you continue, I want to remind you that whatever you do in this world, whatever you create in this world, whatever money you accumulate in this world, at the end of your life, you can't even take a pair of socks. (laughs) Let me ask you my next question. Let's get down to business here. What do you do if you don't like your job? Quit. You quit. <laughs> Ask yourself what you don't like about the job. Ask yourself what don't you like about the job? Stay there anyways and come around? Stay there anyways. Look for while, a, you're, while you're there, look for another job. That'll make you happy for now. Do you find Be quiet over here. Huh? Contemplate. Contemplate. Think, of Think of things to make the current job better. But Tom Wood says who is happy? Next week we'll talk about happiness not a paid-for advertisement. The Talmud says, Who is happy? One who is happy with their lot, with what they have. That's who is happy. One who is happy with what they have. That's a happy person. In this world, the Kabbalah says, We must always have our feet on the ground, but our eyes focused on the future. You can't focus in the future unless you're firmly planted on the ground. You can't be flying. Say, all I care about is what's going to happen tomorrow. First, be here. The purpose of being in this world we established last week is to be within this world but stay above it. To constantly be within this world. To make this world a better place. To make this world a place that's wonderful, it's beautiful, it's magical. But to stay above it. Feet. Be- Firmly planted, eyes to the, f- to the future. The grass is always going to be greener. If you don't like your job, Kabbalah says, stay there. Because the things in your life that you don't like the most are the things that are most important in your life. I'll say that again. The things in your life that you don't like the most, says the Kabbalah, are the things in your life that are most important. Your purpose in this world will be the toughest thing for you to do. If you think about the thing you hate the most, the hardest thing for you to do, that is a piece, or maybe even the entire purpose for which you were created. Anyone that said this life is supposed to be easy was wrong. The purpose of being in this world is not to be easy. Actually, the purpose of being in this world is to struggle. Struggle is a Jewish value. We love struggle. We say, bring it on. The more the better. We're great at struggle. We're great at guilt, but we're great at struggle. It's a coping mechanism for the struggle. The guilt. But we have no problem saying, when I was young, I used to walk to school barefoot, uphill both ways, in the snow, while it was raining. We love it. We embrace it. We joke about it. Because it's so important to us. There's nothing more important than our struggle. There's nothing more valuable than our struggle fascinating how the most celebrated jewish holidays outside of the jewish christmas which is coming up but anyway and whatever 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 holiday would have been that time of year would have been popular in this in this world but outside of that the two most celebrated holidays are yom kippur and and passover right now i just want to tell you in case you never knew this there was a holiday where the purpose of this holiday is to eat cheesecake. Lots and lots and lots of cheesecake. Now, if I was thinking about which holiday to make popular, Shavuot, that should be the most popular Jewish holiday. That should be the one. Oh, but yeah, where are you going for Shavuot? Yeah, what are you doing for Shavuot? Oh, yeah, I'm going to my mom's. We're going to have a break to fast for Shavuot. We're eating cheesecake. And lots of cheesecake. No one ever heard of this holiday. Nobody even talks about this holiday. This is the least celebrated Jewish holiday. The easiest. Which which one is the most celebrated? The one where if you're OCD, and it's spring, stand back, because that house is going to be finished. And that Seder, oh wow. And we got to look at every single crumb with a toothbrush and a toothpick and we go crazy. Oh, and the other one, where we're standing in the synagogue for 25 hours with bad breath? (laughs) The two most difficult holidays are the most popular. Why? Because they're the two most difficult. Because difficult things will survive. Because we love struggle, and struggle is important. We embrace struggle. We love struggle. (laughs) We've there for two hundred years, struggling every single day. It's because we didn't only come from Egypt. We've come through so much. And we are alive today. All the people that tried to destroy us, they're gone. But we're still alive because we struggled. And you know, we'll try it again. Europe didn't work. What happened? All the survivors. They came to a new country, they were successful. Very few were not successful, and some of them successful beyond their wildest imagination because they understood the value of hard work, because their parents taught them hard work. Unfortunately, a lot of them didn't transfer that to us. And the world that we live in, we've become too accustomed to a certain style of life, but we try our best to work as little as possible and make the most money. They don't say work harder, they say work smarter. You can work smarter, but for the right things, we need to work harder, like on ourselves, like on our relationship, like on the way we look at the world and our studies and our values. These things, we have to work harder, not smarter. Smarter is good, too. And my last, my last one, before we get into some deep concepts. I learned the meaning of financial security. For thousands of years, people got up in the morning, worked the land, and toiled at their craft, collected a day's earnings or a season's harvest, and lived their lives. Their sense of security derived not from their bank accounts and stock portfolios, but from the confidence that the same God who created them and placed them upon this earth also provides their means of sustenance. No, there are no free lunches falling down from heaven. After all, God created us to be his partners in the business of life, not freeloading guests. But if we do our part, God will do his. If we do our part, God will do his. Life has become more complicated since those simple days. More sophisticated and, yes, more rewarding. Today, doing our part means not just getting a job, but also acquiring mortgages, insurance plans, retirement accounts, and a slew of other financial instruments. But the basic equation remains the same. We do our part to better God's world, and God does his part in providing us the means to do so. It is to this partnership with our Creator that we've learned to look at our source of happiness, fulfillment. And security. I promise you. Promise is a big word. I promise you, says the Torah, not me. That if you put in a finger, if you do your part, God will take care of you. I put my life on it. <laughs> Just make that shift. Make that conscious shift. It's not a scary thing. Believe me, whatever's been working till now, probably hasn't been working. So it's not going to be hard to make that shift if you want to. Just believe. I'm not saying don't work. And this is going to get to my, the most important part of tonight's class. What I want you to go home with. Something I've spoken about before, but I want to go a step further with it. I want to talk about it again and then go a step further with it. I started, I approached it a bit last week. There are two parts to the story. It's called Arot and Kalim. It's called light and vessels. So last week I spoke about how the world was created with light and vessels. Now I want to talk about how these vessels work in our lives. You want a blessing you can say, God, I want a million dollars. What are you going to do with a million dollars? Do you know what you're going to do with a million dollars? What are you going to do? If somebody gave you a million dollars today, what would you do with it? Invest. Invest. OK. You can invest ten dollars, you can invest a million dollars. You don't need a million dollars to invest. If someone gave you a million dollars today, what would you do with it? Would uh, you really? Really? <laughs> You know you, you know that story, right? So this guy comes. It's in communist Russia. This guy comes and he says, um, the Tsar has a question for you, dear uh, peasant. If you had 100 horses, stallions, would you give them to the Tsar? If I had a 100 stallions, strong and fast, I would give them to the Tsar. If you had 70 stallions, the Tsar wants to know, would you give them to the Tsar? If I had 70 stallions, strong and fast, I would give them to the Tsar. If you had 50 stallions, would you give them to the Tsar? 50, of course. 40, of course. 20, of course. 10. If I had 10 stallions, I would give 10 stallions to the Tsar. The, the, the stallion in your backyard over there. The Tsar wants it. Oh, but that I have. <laughs> Get a million dollars, what would you do with it? Yeah, it's easy. Of course. Of course. Yeah. We're all... It's amazing. We're all very... I'm, I'm not saying anything about you. Yeah. Make it white. They make it kosher. They make the money kosher. Okay. They basically stay. For sure. And grow. And the rest... You know. Exactly. And exactly. Well, you know. It doesn't matter because... A million dollars is a lot of money. A million dollars isn't... It, it's, it's a crazy idea. Look at people who win the lottery. They, they lose it in, in a year, two years. The average person who wins the lottery doesn't have a penny to their name in two years. Two years! What do they do with a million dollars? They blow it on the craziest things. You hear these stories of these people. They can't handle it. So it's a very important idea in Kabbalah. And I'm going to teach this to you. It's going to be something that you're going to use every day in your life. It's something that I use every day in my life. It's this idea of a vessel. So... Can I borrow your cup? Is it okay? Of course, of course. In this cup is water. Now, if I wanted a liter of water, could I fit this water in this cup? No. Oh, okay. Give me a second. So I have a cup here, and it has water in it. How much water is in this cup? A few ounces, a few ounces of water, right? Is it full? No. no. So, I have more cup than I have water, correct? Right. Okay. So, that means that I have a lot of space to put more water in. I'm going to do so right now. How much more space do I have to put water in? Not much. Okay. No. Okay. So, if... Let's just say that this, right now, is most of our vessels. They're full. We've got a lot of stuff. We've got a lot of physical stuff. We've got a lot of emotional stuff. We've got a lot of stuff. Okay? That's the vessel. Now, I need a blessing. I need a blessing. Okay, give me a blessing somebody needs. A big, a big one. A big Can Never make the vessel bigger. No. The vessel's the vessel. No. So they want blessing for money. I only have a little bit of space in my vessel for the money. What do I have to do if I want to release? I've got to empty the vessel. The first step before being able to get the blessing is empty the vessel. You're all thinking the same thing, I'm Sure. That was very nice, Rabbi. How do we empty the vessel? How do we empty the vessel? So physically, get rid of the garbage. You start by getting rid of the garbage in your life. That's the first thing. How do you discern the garbage from the good struggle? Usually, it's pretty obvious. Yeah. Garbage is garbage. Garbage is, is, is stagnant. It doesn't move. It can It doesn't have any life of its own. The stuff that you're struggling with has a life. Sometimes it's fighting you back. Don't get rid of that, because that's got that's got a life. The stuff that's just dead space. That's the first thing. Emotionally, what do you do? You mourn. You forgive. You let go. Resentment, as dear Abby says, is allowing somebody you don't like to take up important real estate in your mind don't hold those grudges get rid of it let it go and then spiritually spiritually I want to go to the next step I spoke a little bit about it last week but I want to focus a little more on it this week Hiskafia Hisapha Abstain, transform. Hiskafia, and then hisapha. That's the Kabbalistic terms for it. Hiskafia. Abstain. Transform. Hisapha. Hisapha. Abstain, transform. Now, let's talk about diets for a second. Why do of people like to go on diets. A great New Year's resolution. New Year's is coming up. Great New Year's resolution. So what are most diets made out of? Them? The, first, the first, abstain. Don't eat this, don't do this, eat right for your blood type, eat the South Beach cookies. But what happens when you abstain? When you say, don't eat sugars. And you do that for two months. So that for 60 days, I'm going to go on a cleanse. I'm not going to have any refined sugar or flour. What happens after that 60 days? Well, studies have shown that you gain all the weight back plus 5 pounds. That's what studies have shown. I'm going to show you now the Kabbalah diet. I promise you you're going to make money tonight. Didn't I say you're going to come in here I'm going to show you how to make money? I'm going to show you how to make money. If anybody's a writer. Write the Kabbalah diet. Because every diet is missing a crucial component. The first step is to abstain. If you're an addict, get rid of the alcohol. Get out of the casino. If you like the food, don't put yourself in front of a dessert table at every event you go. Just don't walk over there. You know you like it. You know if you go there. So just don't put it, don't tempt yourself. It's not going to do you any good by trying to tempt yourself. Just don't even go. You'll see it's over there. Talk to your friend on the other side of the room and purposely say, you know, can we walk to that side of the room? I like it. The, the The wind is blowing in nicely over there. It's a better breeze. Take yourself. The first step is great. That is always the first step. Take yourself. We said last week, physically, remove yourself physically. But the next step is really the complicated part. And that's the transformation step. How do you transform? See, a lot of the Eastern practices, which are many of those that we've adopted because they've become so popular today through yoga and some of the meditative ideas of yoga. So a lot of them are being adopted through an Eastern philosophy which what does it say? The way you transform is by is by emptying emptying empty Kabbalah has a big problem with that. The problem is that you can never empty. It will be filled with something. So what Kabbalah wants you to do, and Kabbalah meditation is very different than Eastern meditation. You want to focus on something good. Instead of trying to empty yourself and saying, you know, um, find something good. So it could be, you start off very simply. You like the beach and the waves, focus on the beach and the waves. That's the first step, to allow yourself to be directed, uh, uh, to focus, to channel. That's really easy. You like something, you like uh, something that makes you happy, that makes you just easy. Just focus on on something nice. But over time, when you learn to focus your thoughts, you're going to start putting in something new, like something directed. So, for example, is a perfect example. I mean, this is a very basic example. You want to stop smoking? You're never going to be able to stop smoking unless you start doing something else. Stop this and start this. Stop smoking, start drinking a lot of water. Every time you have an urge or craving, drink water. It's going to, it's going to studies have shown it, it'll, it'll solve a problem. You'll be drinking buckets of water. I mean, you'll be drinking, They say you start off, you drink, uh, I think, uh, first day, 10, 20 liters of water. And then slowly, the water, you can't get addicted to water. So let that addiction, people who are addicted to things have to be addicted to something. So find something that's not addictive to be addicted to. You have to focus that attention. If it's, give me another example of something else. Chewing gum. Chewing gum, I don't know. Give me a more refined example. Of or of anything. Nail biting? Something more refined. Okay, something yeah. you correct. Something more refined, like spiritual or being a better person. Something that we have a hard time doing. Letting God. So somebody wants, huh? Okay, I'll do them both. So first I'll go studying Torah. You want to study Torah? It's not easy. It's not easy. So the first thing you do is you abstain from what? If you want to try to find a good value, bring a good value into your life, what do you do? You have to abstain from the negative things that you're doing. For example, TV would be a great example. So don't turn on the TV. That's it. It doesn't matter. There's nothing to watch anyway. So... You don't start off by not watching TV. You start off by getting rid of your cable and getting Netflix. Why am I saying getting rid of cable and getting Netflix? Because Netflix, you're going to watch something pointed. You're going to look through it and you're going to find something to watch. You're going to watch it two hours and voila. I mean, I know there's binge watching and stuff like that, but it's more directed. It's not just flipping through channels. And the moment You become more directed, you're going to have an easier time weaning off of it. You're going to start controlling yourself. You have to. The problem with TV is a great example, is that people just flip through channels and they'll spend hours watching Gurnished, Nada, Nothing, Zilp, Zitch. And the TV controls them. And the TV ends up. And and there's so many channels, like 500 channels, I don't know what there is today. It's insane. I was in a hotel and I turned on the TV for the first time in 10 years and I was like, whoa. It was insane. It was like, I didn't even know know how to use it. I I mean, I'm I'm pretty techno. uh, It's crazy. Netflix is a good, you have to replace it with something else. You can't say, that's it. I mean, some people can go cold turkey. Most people can't. Then you start. And then slowly you say, okay, I'm going to watch one show. And then slowly, and you're going to find you have so much more time. The average person watches four to six hours of TV a day a lot of TV. It's a lot more time. You're going to find yourself a lot more time. Start reading. And eventually you'll have time and you'll be able to start adapting new habits. In order to change bad habits to good habits, it doesn't happen overnight, it's a slow process, have to first get, slowly get rid of the bad habits. And slowly introduce the good habits. And eventually that's what happens. Forgiveness. It's a big one. How do you forgive? Who was at my Kabbalah forgiveness? Who remembers the three steps of forgiving? No. Yeah? The first step is to let go. Just let go. Don't hold on to it. The next step is... Forgive them in your heart. And then you can forgive them. You may never get to the third step of actually forgiving them, but even if by letting go and forgiving them in your heart, it's the first form of forgiveness. I'm sorry I'm not doing justice to it. If you want, I'm happy to send you the recording from that that lecture. It's very... I did it right before Rosh Hashanah a couple months ago. Thank you. (laughs) I appreciate that. Now, sometimes we can have a vessel that's too big. You're saying to me, what do you mean a vessel that's too big? There can never be a vessel that's too big. It could be a vessel that's too big. It could be...